In the fall of 2015, we started a series on John's biography of Jesus, and we only worked our way through the first 11 chapters, and then we pressed pause. But we called that particular part of this biography, as we went through it, um, When Love Comes to Town. And you might say, why? Well, it's because at the very beginning of John's biography of Jesus, he says this, he describes Jesus' birth in this way. He says, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh, that is a human being, and made his dwelling among us. Or as uh, Eugene Peterson so memorably paraphrased it, he said, and God moved into the neighborhood. And you have to think about it, it's a remarkable statement. What it's saying is that God is not detached. He's not aloof, instead he chose to enter our world He accepted our limitations. He made himself vulnerable. He exposed himself to our temptations and experienced the bitterness of our sorrows. And then in the end, the story will go, and we'll learn this over the next few months, he made a huge sacrifice. He was tried. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was condemned. He was flogged. He was crucified. The victim of gross injustice. In other words, the story doesn't end well. Now, other world religions promise to lead us to a God up there. Buddhism has a God who's detached from suffering. But only the Christian God enters the world and suffers for us and with us. Only Christianity has a God who comes to find us, a God who joins us in our pain and brings us peace. We started that year in the fall of 2015 with John's unique way of telling the Christmas story. And God moved into the neighborhood. And what we saw pretty quickly is that the reaction to Jesus was very positive. He attracted large and enthusiastic crowds. Along the way, he selected 12 specific disciples to be with him constantly over the next three years. And they saw and heard some remarkable things. Slowly, though, they observed how Jesus began to encounter opposition. At first, it was theological and political, but then it got personal. And when we finished that particular part of the story... Chapter 11 ended with a plot hatched by some key religious leaders to have Jesus killed. And from that point on, and the story unfolds as we'll see in the next few months, there's no illusion how this story will end. Jesus is going to die. The only question is how and when. So from now until Easter and actually a week beyond, we're going to work our way through the second half of John's biography of Jesus. And this time we're calling this part of the story, John on Jesus. And we'll see as we move through this that there are three sections to the way John has described the narrative about Jesus. And the first, which we'll take on the next three weeks, is reactions to Jesus. Some of these are positive, some are negative. This week we'll actually have one of each. Then the second section, which is a long section from chapters 13 through 17, um, is a story of a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. Some of you may be familiar with what we call the Last Supper. Um, when Jesus meets with his disciples, has a meal right before he, is, he goes out and finds himself to be arrested. When he has that meal, they have a conversation. None of the biographies of Jesus tell us anything about what happened, or not much, but John gives us a narrative about what they talked about, and so we'll look at that. And then as we get closer to Easter, we'll look at the difficult story of Jesus' death and see how the story ended with a great reversal. But what I'd like to do today is begin with the first of these stories that describe reactions to Jesus. And this one begins in John chapter 12, verse 1. Um, You can either follow along with the words on the screen, or if you'd like to, you could open the Pew Bible to page 1637. Page 1637, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Here's what John tells us. He says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served 
while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were siblings. Um, They were close friends of Jesus. They were well-to-do. They lived in a community that was a suburb of Jerusalem. Bethany was not far away. And Jesus was a frequent visitor to their home. It was a place he could go to rest and relax, to get away from the press of the crowd, to be with people that he loved and and people that enjoyed being with him. It seems that, uh, from what we understand, that he often used their guest room. Months before, Lazarus had been gravely ill and... Mary and Martha had sent for Jesus, and Jesus came to the home, although he delayed along the way, and in the meantime, Lazarus died. And when he arrived, Mary and Martha were very upset. They informed Jesus in no uncertain terms that if he had just made his way a little faster, that Lazarus would not have died. But Jesus surprised them by saying, let's go to the tomb. And they may at first thought that he just simply wanted to honor Lazarus. But when he got there, he informed them or asked them, to roll away the stone from the front of the tomb. Well, they resisted and told him that, listen, it's not going to be a pretty smell, and, but he, they did. And then Jesus called out to Lazarus, and miraculously, he walked right out of the tomb, alive, raised from the dead. So this is now a few months later, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are hosting this dinner in his honor. Guests in those days didn't sit at tables. They reclined on couches, low couches, with their feet away from the table. And that was intentional. Feet were considered impure. Walking on dusty roads, uh, no one wanted to see your feet. There were even laws about having not uh, requiring slaves to wash their master's feet, although it was something that was done from time to time. And it's in the midst of this meal that we see two very different reactions to Jesus. And the first has to do with Mary, one of these three siblings. While they were eating, Mary surprised everyone by taking a pint full of an expensive perfume and she opened it and she poured it on Jesus' feet. And suddenly, things in the room became tense. It was an awkward social moment. Nobody said anything while Mary, shamelessly emotional, one of the other biographers describes her as weeping, she did something that no respectable woman would have ever thought of doing. And what she did was, first of all, extravagant. John tells us that the perfume was worth a year's wages. So let's just say it's worth maybe thirty dollars or $40,000 for a pint of perfume. It might have been a family heirloom. It might have been purchased. She may have even purchased it for this occasion. But whatever she did, however it came to her, it was worth a significant amount of money. She took the most precious thing that she owned and she spent it all on Jesus, all in one single moment. But Mary wasn't calculating the cost, at least not in the way that we have. True love doesn't think that way. It gives all that it, it has, and its only regret is that it does not have more to give. But it wasn't just extravagant. What she gave was also scandalous. Has she no shame, someone must have said from around the table. She raised eyebrows. Women in those days did not let down their hair. 
They kept their hair covered. It was the social convention of the day. What she did was the equivalent of hiking up your dress up to your thighs. Only prostitutes did things like that in those days. What she did was also very humble. Now, it was rare, but occasionally in ancient world, you would hear of someone who would honor an important person by pouring either oil or perfume over the head of someone that they were intending to honor. But Mary didn't feel even worthy of that, so she anointed his feet, a sign of great humility. But what it was ultimately was an act of pure devotion. Unselfconsciously, she defied social convention. She entered a room full of men, which was not what you should have done. She knelt down. She let down her hair. Again, not something she should have done. She opened this bottle and she poured the perfume on his feet. It was extravagant, impractical, socially acceptable, uh, um, excessive, even awkward. But everyone there in the house smelled this smell of perfume. It just permeated the whole place. And they knew clearly that Mary loved Jesus. Now you think about what would that look like today? I'm not suggesting that we all come to church with bottles of perfume, pour them on one another's feet. But what if we came with the kind of devotion that Mary came with? What if we came to church that way? You know, often we come because we want to get something out of it. So sometimes people go from church to church chasing the hottest band and the most engaging speaker. But coming to church is not all about us. I hope you get something out of today. You get something out of most weeks. That will be great. But it's not the main reason that we gather together. We gather together out of devotion for Jesus. Mary so flouted social conventions that most there weren't sure what to think of what she had done. But there was one who did, one observer who was angry. He was someone who knew the price of everything but the value of nothing, and he was upset with Jesus. Judas had high expectations of Jesus from the beginning. He had hoped that Jesus would be the political leader the religious leader that many in Israel thought the nation needed. And now he had turned on Jesus. And why had he done that? I want you to pause on that question for just a moment. And let's look first at how Judas looked at what Mary did. When she poured the perfume over Jesus' feet, all he could think of was how much money was being poured down the drain. Why? Such a waste. Why, he said, wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's a fair question, one we'll come back to. But he wasn't being sincere. Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end, to his ends. He had hoped to have an important role in Jesus' administration when Jesus seized the hands of political power. And he was greedy. He loved power and money. He didn't care about Mary's devotion or about the poor. And I think there's a warning for us here. Judas, by the way, didn't start out bad. Okay, Judas started out much like the rest of them. Many of the other disciples were confused about what Jesus' purpose was here on earth. Many of the others, and we even have stories where they were grasping at power, wanting to be big in a political administration that was a, an earthly, temporal kingdom. But the others eventually saw Jesus for who he was and what he offered for them. Judas, on the other hand, because his heart was more concerned with money and power than it was about God, began to drift from Jesus. In fact, it's this episode we know that sealed the deal. From this point on, in fact, just a few days later, he would go to the religious leaders and offer to portray Jesus. But you have to wonder, did Judas have a point? Couldn't the money have been, that was spent on the perfume have been used to alleviate suffering, to feed the poor, to fight injustice? Perhaps we're being overly critical of Judas. Maybe we should see him as a great humanitarian, as a compassionate social activist. Now, John gives an editorial comment here and says, now, Judas just loved money. 
In other words, his motivation was greed. Perhaps if the perfume had been sold, he would have collected a little commission the way a real estate broker collects a commission when you sell your home. But what about the poor? Doesn't Judas have a point? Well, it's a question that Judas asks, and Jesus answers, although Jesus' answer has often been misunderstood. So to Judas' question, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor, Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you. And that's been often interpreted as a very callous statement. Now, what we first need to understand is that Jesus is not saying we're to ignore the needs of the poor. He's not giving an excuse for stinginess. He's not saying that we can remain complacent because poverty seems intractable. In fact, he's saying exactly the opposite. Jesus, when he says, you'll always have the poor among you, is quoting an Old Testament verse, although he's only quoting the first half. Most of his listeners would have known the second half, so it was assumed. So let me just read the missing phrase. Actually, I'll read the entire verse. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. And there it says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. So even if poverty seems insurmountable, they are to remain generous. That's the message of Deuteronomy 15, 11. So the point here isn't to ignore the needs of the poor, take care of the poor, he tells them, but even more, make sure you prioritize your relationship with God. In fact, a relationship with God will naturally overflow into care and concern for the poor. So that's what Jesus was getting at. Now, in a moment, Mary understood, or in the moment, Mary understood that her loyalty to Jesus was her ultimate priority. Jesus wasn't pleased with what she did just because he liked the smell of Chanel number no. five. He was pleased because this was an act of devotion. What he was pleased with was Mary's complete commitment and devotion to him. She didn't care what others thought. She didn't care about her social reputation. She only cared about honoring Jesus. So what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to honor Jesus? Do we come to Jesus in order to get something, happiness, peace, freedom from a bad habit, all of those things are good, but ultimately, we need to come and honor him for who he is, our Lord and Savior, to let others know that we intend to make him a priority, to obey what Jesus asks of us, even when it, at first, may not make sense, to be willing to give up a little bit of respectability in order to tell Jesus that he is everything to us, to stand up against injustice when it might be a whole lot easier to remain silent, to leave money on the table rather than to cut a corner so that we can somehow make things work in our favor, to identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, even if it means that we might be ridiculed. There is, and John points this out, some significant symbolism in what Mary does, although she really doesn't understand what she's doing. Soon Jesus will be arrested and tried and convicted and executed, and the perfume that she uses, Jesus tells everyone there, anticipates the way his body would be prepared for burial. So Mary wasn't aware of the full significance of her actions. She ended up signaling more than she knew, but she was doing this as an act of devotion. So what are we to do with this story? I mentioned at the beginning that there are two different reactions, contrasting reactions to Jesus. So here's Mary willing to give everything that she has out of devotion to Jesus. And Judas, who says, listen, I've got limits. There's got to be something in this for me. And for him, it was money and power. When he couldn't get more in return than he put in, he was out. And we're the same way at times. 
We're willing to follow Jesus up to a point, but when he asks us for, say, control of our lives or to give him a little bit of money or some of our time or to experience being socially awkward because we are choosing to be followers of Christ, then we're out. But here's the irony. In the way the story is told, Mary gave up a great deal, and yet it was small in comparison for what she received in return. And Judas, what he held on to, he quickly lost. Following Jesus might cost us something. It might cost us some money, a relationship, some respectability, control of our lives. But if we really understand what Jesus is offering, what we'll see is that we give, what we have to give is far exceeded by what we receive in return. Now, not long after this story, Jesus went to the cross. He died the death that we deserved in order that we might have life. And all he asks is that we give up control of our lives, that we confess our acts of sin and rebellion. We committed against him. And then we decide and commit to follow him for the rest of our lives, to obey him. And in return, we experience forgiveness of sin, the hope of eternity, and the power in this life to live the lives that we were created to live, lives of goodness and service here on earth. But we have an innate fear of commitment. Maybe it's more true now than it was before, or maybe it's always been true, but there is something that we want to hold back. We want to make bargains with God. We're careful before we sign on the dotted line. And so we may live together before we're married because we're not sure, not sure if the relationship's going to work out, even though social scientists tell us that relationships that begin that way are much more likely to end in divorce. We take jobs not thinking of that job, but thinking of the next one or the next one after that. And we make financial commitments looking at the fine print so we can find the loopholes. But following Jesus isn't like that. He's asking us to commit to follow him even when we don't know how things are going to turn out. He tells us to commit without a specific promise of a material benefit in return and asks us to obey even when we don't always understand why what we're being asked to obey means, why it's important. So why should we be willing to make that commitment? Well, for the same reason that Mary was willing to give a wholehearted commitment to Jesus, and that is because she knew that Jesus had given himself wholeheartedly to her. We need to be willing to make a commitment to Jesus even though we don't understand everything simply because he's paid an incredible price on the cross to understand that we have been given riches through his resurrection that we may only vaguely begin to understand. When we do, the commitment is much easier. It's a joyous response to what God did for us, a way to say thank you, not a way to earn God's favor. Too often, we try to do what Judas did with Jesus. We bargain with God. We try to think of how we can get the most out of whatever it is we have to give. So we'll say something to God like, you know, listen, I'll give you 10% of my money or I'll uh, work hard for a bad boss, but you owe me. You have to make me happy. So we make this implicit bargain with God. You might say, well, how do I know I'm making a bargain? The only way that I've been able to discern when I'm in that bargaining mode is by how I react to adversity, to a setback, to disappointment, to suffering. Do I trust God that he will make things right in the end or do I get angry and bitter and cynical? The reactions I have often reveal that I've implicitly made a bargain with God. The commitment that Jesus is asking us to make, the commitment Mary made to him that day in her home is a commitment, first of all, to give all that we are to God. God wants more than our stuff. He wants us. It's the hardest thing to give. There's a famous statement by a man who would later be martyred for his faith named Jim Elliot, who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We're also to give 
all that we do. That is a commitment to obey, even if it doesn't make sense. If there are any ifs in our obedience, I will do this if you do that, then we're not fully committed. What we need to do is unconditionally commit to obey Jesus. And we need to give all that we have. Mary here gave the most precious thing that she owned, a year's worth of wages, and she did it with joy. And we can do the same thing. Now, the paradox of the story is that Mary gave up everything but received everything in return. From time to time, I know I've been guilty. Maybe not just time to time. Maybe most of the time. I'm guilty of making these kinds of bargains, of wondering whether Jesus is asking me to give up too much. I know that I've been tempted to bargain with God. And sometimes I think that's still a persistent issue in all our lives. But what Mary's extravagant act tells us is that in Jesus, she recognized she had the most precious thing in the world. So instead of thinking of what she was giving up, she thought of Jesus of giving her far more than what she was being asked to give. I think it was when I was in ninth grade that I read a famous story by O. Henry. O. Henry is probably the master of the short story. It's a story called The Gift of the Magi, and it tells about a poor young couple named Della and Jim. They were very much in love, but they were extremely poor. Each of them had a prized possession, though. Uh, Della had very long, beautiful hair, and Jim had this expensive gold watch. And it was Christmas time, and they were trying to think of what they could buy, and they wanted to each buy a memorable present for the other. But again, they didn't have much money. So on the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve, each went out shopping. They didn't have anything to spend, so Della decided what she would do is to sell her hair. So her hair was cut off and used perhaps to make a wig for someone else. And she used the money that she got from selling her hair to buy a gold chain that Jim could use with his watch. And if you heard the story, you know that at the same very moment that Jim was in a jeweler's shop selling his expensive gold watch in order to be able to, buy money, to get money to buy a present for her. And the present he chose was a set, an expensive set of tortoise shell combs for her hair. So the two come home, having given away the thing that was most precious to them, and finding out that the presents that they bought for one another were now worthless. Except that in the way that O. Henry tells the story, both of them are overwhelmed by the generosity and love that the other has shown, even though these presents are now worthless. Jesus has given us all that he had. He's given us his life. Can we not give us or give him our lives in return and know that when we do, we are promised riches this world knows nothing of. Let's pray. Father, this story gives two different reactions to Jesus, one motivated by selfish gain and by a need for power and a love of money, and the other given out of pure devotion to Jesus. Father, help us to understand, while it might be hard, to make a wholehearted commitment to you to make a commitment of our lives, what we are, what we do, what we have to you, knowing that we, what we receive in return is far greater than what we might have to give. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.